Thank you so much for everyone for coming. I'm really delighted to have everybody here. I'm going to talk pretty fast, I hope, about this uh, paper, which I wrote with Amanda Nurse, who's my wonderful RA and who's sitting over here. So I want to acknowledge her immense help without which this would not exist. Okay, so it's institutions, perceptions, and adaptation to extreme climate risk. And I'm going to make it go forward. There we go. Um, so, I mean, this is all information that is not news to anybody in this room, right? So we've noticed over the last while that we have increasing prevalence of these different kinds of extreme climate events. Uh, there's a little list on here. But like I say, I don't think I need to give you guys a list for you to be familiar with the fact that floods, fires, um, and various other kinds of climate-related disasters are something we're increasingly dealing with. One of the things that I think uh, we see from these recent events is that we're actually, I think, lagging behind when it comes to adaptation. Okay, So most of the focus, if you look at the discussion around climate change, is really put on mitigation, right? Our targets, our timetables, our discussion is really anchored around the idea that we're going to somehow hold ourselves to 1.5 degrees, increasingly less optimistic. But even if we were to do that, Okay, that wouldn't change the fact that we actually also need adaptation planning. So what I wanted to try and do in this paper with Amanda is we want to try and see what explains the sort of failure to push ahead with adaptation. Why are we lagging here? And so what we're going to try and do is identify some uh, what I'll call institutional barriers and then sort of public perception oriented barriers. And... Um, use those insights to try and uh, assess what kinds of adaptation policies might be the most likely to get public support and be something that uh, we could see uh, adapt, adapted, adopted, to adapt. <laughs> and the last part is, you know, the hope that I'm going to do this empirical study, which, you know, sorry for people who have seen this, I haven't done it yet. Okay, uh, But we'll talk a little bit about that. So in thinking about adaptation, we sort of started off by kind of giving ourselves a little bit of a taxonomy here to think about well, sort of what are the options and strategies for pursuing adaptation. So you can see we kind of prioritized a set of what we call these different strategies from sort of protecting, so building things to essentially stave off the impacts of these different kinds of climate extreme events accommodating. So that's essentially you can stay in place, but you sort of build around the idea that you're going to experience these events. Okay. Avoiding. This is where we okay, try to do things like not as extreme as Stephanie's suggesting, but for example, using zoning to try and mitigate the exposure. And then the last sort of option in our strategies is retreat. So we've kind of ordered them here uh, from you know, kind of imposing the least obligations in some sense on people with respect to being in place to the most disruptive. Okay. And then we thought about, well, how do people actually, how could we pursue these different types of strategies? What are the policy levers that we have to use? And again, we're kind of going to go in this uh, case, again, from sort of the, in the some sense, the least coercive, okay, down to sort of the most intrusive in terms of having a policy so the first one we think about is sort of just information policy, providing information to people, risk mapping, those kinds of things, providing incentives, okay? So resiliency grants, rebates, maybe insurance premiums, regulatory standards, so imposing certain kinds of building standards or resiliency requirements for construction, land use requirements, and then, you know, again, sort of most restrictive expropriation, actually sort of having forced relocation 
there's sort of an opt-in version of that, right? But the more restrictive version is the not opt-in version. Okay. Okay. So, you know, that sort of is the matrix of things that we could think about. And you know, if you put those two things together, I think we did do that in a table <laughs> in the paper. You see, there's really like a lot of options and a lot of flexibility for adopting different kinds of adaptation strategies. But what we see in practice is there's actually relatively, so far, relative to mitigation strategy, there's relatively little progress with these things, at least in Canada, I'll say. And so what we want to do is try and think about, well, why is that? So again, here we've essentially uh, come up with a few different explanations, institutional explanations for why that might be. One is what we've called the idea of risk resource gaps. So most of the responsibility for adaptation policy is delegated to municipal governments. This really creates what we call this risk, uh, this risk resource gap because there's a narrow tax base and cost, even cost-justified adaptation investments can essentially require governments to cooperate with other levels in order to actually get the financial resources to pursue them. And so that can cause both a lag in terms of pursuing projects, especially if you have misalignment between different levels of government. And it can also promote reliance on after the fact. Okay, so after the fact, disaster finance, in some sense, doesn't require these kinds of coordination, right? So the upfront um, investment isn't happening. Uh, yeah, okay, so it's, um, yeah. So the other thing is when we think about locating adaptation policy primarily at this local level, Katrina already mentioned this, a lot of the arguments around that, they seem like they make sense, right? You've got sort of an alignment of, benefits and negative impacts from not making the investments. Uh, that's a sort of subsidiarity story of why this could make sense. People will be engaged. You know, the sort of dark side of local politics, of course, though, is always the idea that it's possible that we actually have powerful interests can sort of more easily capture these institutions, right? Um, and so when we think about local governments, I mean, I don't know about your local governments, but it's, you know, when most people don't like to think about local government, we actually don't do that at all, right? Sit around thinking about city council. Um, but, you know, uh, homeowners, we, many people in the literature have recognized that homeowners are an extremely powerful interest group, right? Uh, we don't have to look very far to see homeowners being active in local politics when it comes to uh, changes like zoning or appropriation of funds. And um, so there's a bit of a risk that this essentially um, entrenches, <clears throat> sorry, the status quo. We can get develop. one of the impacts of this is we see development getting pushed out to areas that are often more exposed to uh, extreme climate risks, okay? Um, the development lobby can also contribute to this problem okay? in the sense that we have developers perhaps keen to push outside, keep expanding city boundaries, and not necessarily focused on taking into account adaptation or building in extra costs that could be required in order to implement adaptation strategies as part of development. Okay? Um, and again, similar kinds of pressures can also put, put pressure on the ability to actually raise funds for adaptation within the municipality. So people would like adaptation, but when you think about raising property taxes, 
Raising property taxes is probably one of the least favorite strategies of local politicians to do anything, right? Um, so, you know, you can see that these are just some of the problems that occur. Okay, there's also different kinds of mismatches when you think about putting this right at the local level, right? So the natural jurisdictional and other boundaries is something that we talk about in the paper. The idea that extreme climate events often spill across jurisdictional boundaries. So when we have municipalities or local governments primarily responsible, again, this increases the coordination costs. It's a poor match with local authority often. It requires coordination, creates these additional gaps, information gaps, okay? Um, and again, the sort of mismatched costs and benefits uh, that can happen if ex post disaster costs are spread beyond the municipality through uh, provision of funds from other levels of government, okay, it again undermines this sort of matching of um, incentives for investing in adaptation versus relying on ex post relief. Uh, so that's a little bit also about the mismatch between time, right? Who, it, when we actually pay the costs, we pay the costs now, but benefits only accrue later and in an uncertain way. Okay, so again, is this more problematic at a local level? Potentially, okay? At least if we're doing it at a national or a higher regional level, okay, we probably have more of a potential for uh, communities within the larger region to benefit from plans, okay? Um, as opposed to, sort of localizing all that. Uh, I'm, hopefully I'm going fast enough here. <laughs> uh, the conclusion that we come to on these institutional factors is that in many cases, it seems that there are barriers to local action, okay? Despite the fact that effects are felt at a local level. And so that this is sort of an institutional misalignment and that Really, we are going to argue that we need to see higher levels of government, despite the fact that there are some important advantages that local governments have, leaving it exclusively to local governments. I think, you know, structurally, we're arguing that this will lead to these systematic delays and gaps. And so there has to be some kind of role played by higher levels of government in driving adaptation policy at the local level. Um, yeah, we have this little piece about maybe there's a role for private actors. I'll just leave that like a thought hanging there. <laughs> okay. Um, we talked a little bit in the paper also about some of the kind of perceptual issues. Okay. So one of the things we want to try and do is put together these sort of institutional structures, but also think about the political economy of adaptation policy and how do you convince the public to be supportive of different types of adaptation policies. So, you know, there are a variety of things here, and I'm sure like Arden, you can be able to add multiple additional categories here, I know, okay? We talked a little bit about, okay, people are really bad at assessing risk. So even if they actually believe that climate change exists, which they increasingly do, there's quite a lot of evidence that shows they're not very good at assuming that it will actually affect them, right? Uh, you know, there's some really uh, depressing papers. Uh, Iris Hoy had this paper about, you know, people being covered with smoke and still somehow thinking they would never be in a fire. Uh, I mean, smoke goes far, but still, okay, it doesn't really change their perceptions of risk. Um, we have in here, of course, you know, loss aversion and framing. I think this is a little bit of a, you know, it's a very common thing that people talk about in sort of the alternative versions of economic theory. Okay, but the idea here is just people are more sensitive to losses than equivalent gains. And in the realm of losses, they prefer to take a risky loss rather than a certain loss. Okay? 
Adaptation investments, costs that you have to bear in order to actually prepare for the possibility of a risky loss really falls into this kind of characterization. So it's possible that that could be playing a role in making people less receptive to uh, adopting adaptation expenditures, whether that's at a personal level or whether it's voting for them by the municipal government. We have property and the endowment effect. Again, you know, people, the idea here is if there are costs of adaptation or adaptation policy strategies that require taking something away from people's entitlements with respect to their property or ways in which they thought they could use their property or enjoy it, that this kind of cognitive effect, to the extent we find it, will create more of a barrier for that. Okay. The last piece is really about um, political polarization and motivated cognition. So motivated cognition essentially just tells us that people don't process information in the same way. So, you know, for everybody who believes in kind of rational choice theory and we have expected values and, right, expected utility theory. Yeah. So motivated cognition says, no, that's not how it works. Okay? Uh, instead, people's beliefs and particularly their sort of identities lead them to process information in a systematically biased way that favors their own uh, beliefs, uh, values, and commitments. And this can essentially lead to people taking these kind of polarized positions. And so our idea here is that there are actually sort of systematic differences in the way that people on what you know we're calling the conservative liberal divide here would perceive some of these different adaptation policy choices Okay, based on the idea that generally people on the more conservative end of the spectrum will be less likely to be supportive, the more kind of coercive, government-focused um, strategies are, are, and that they're more likely to favor sort of choice-preserving, incentive-based type strategies, whereas our more liberal constituents might be more favorable to sort of government intervention and planning, okay? Uh, sort of more government-mandated adaptation policy changes. So these differences, uh, these differences can be important to the sort of political climate within which you're trying to adopt adaptation policies. So in addition to sort of thinking about the broader cost-benefit or these other institutional features, we also need to think about how these perception and particularly sort of political perception uh, influences are going to influence the ability to adopt adaptation policies successfully. So the you know last piece that I will talk about that I don't have results for that Amanda's like, are you ever going to do this? <laughs> Just keep talking about it. Um, you know the idea here is to try and collect some empirical evidence that would give us a sense of how important are these things like political preferences to people's. Uh, choices between different adaptation strategies. And so it's really just sort of an experiment. It's really an experimental type of empirical research where you can kind of package up different policies, the policy strategy and the different policy lever, and then uh, test and see how much does it matter what type of policy on these sort of stringency versus okay, individualism, okay? How much does that matter to people's approval of these different options? Okay, so that's the that's the punchline that we're hoping to get to. We don't have that yet. Okay, um, but I think you know even from what we've done so far, the tentative conclusions that we uh, have 
um, there is some institutional factors that are contributing to, you know, what I'm calling an adaptation failure. I think we're really slow in coming to addressing adaptation, right? Um, we've got over-reliance on local governments for adaptation, and I think that that's going to slow adaptation because of these structural uh, effects. It's It's got other negative effects in the sense that it's leading to this reliance on ex-post relief. And as the claims on ex-post relief get bigger and more common, it just strains the ability to use that kind of a mechanism to really address these impacts and uses resources that could be way more productively used to promote adaptation and avoid all the terrible costs and harms that people experience when we don't pursue adaptation effectively. So, you know, our remedy here, and we don't actually have a very great prescription about exactly how they'll do it, um, but we think that there really needs to be just a bit more direct involvement or policy strategy um, role played by these higher levels of government and that it can't just be primarily left to local governments. So that's, I think that's it. That's all we'll say. And we'll see if you have any comments, questions, et cetera. Okay, thank you.